There's a joke about a medieval knight who, who rides up from battle on his battered charger and addresses the king. His helmet is crooked, his shield dented, his horse is limping. They look like they have just arrived straight from battle. Your Highness, we have just come from fiercely fighting your enemies to the west. We have burned their crops, destroyed their villages, and have defeated your enemies to the west. The king exclaimed, but I don't have any enemies to the west. With surprise, the knight said, you do now. <laughs> well, let me ask you to consider a question and don't answer aloud, but do reflect honestly. The question is, do you have any enemies at this time? Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. If you are standing for what is right, you will have some enemies. Even if you do everything right as Jesus did, Jesus had enemies. You can tell a lot about a person by whom his or her enemies are. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were enemies of Christ. He didn't want their political endorsement. Although having some enemies is unavoidable when standing for truth, we want to be careful to avoid creating enemies unnecessarily, like that knight did, by our own behavior or mistreatment of others. None of us ever does everything right, and so we can create enemies without even trying. I'd like to give you some, some background on the, the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be studying in these next four messages. This is the longest sermon delivered by Jesus. Many consider these teachings to be the high water mark of Christ's earthly ministry. This series called Message from the Mount will deal with some timely topics addressed by Jesus, like anger, prayer, judging, and enemies. And these teachings are, are as true today as when they were first spoken by Jesus 2,000 years ago. So Jesus set an example for us in the way that he responded to those who mistreated and hated him. And Jesus expects us to be kind to our enemies. That characteristic of being kind to our enemies is something that doesn't come naturally. It goes against our normal human inclination. I love the, the story about two American GIs who had hired a, a Korean houseboy to help with the, the household duties and cooking, and they just never tired of playing practical jokes on this good-natured employee. Once they nailed his shoes to the floor and he went to put them on and they were nailed to the floor and they laughed. And another time they, they put grease on the knob. So when he went over to the stove, he, he couldn't grip or get any traction there. And they came around the corner, <laughs> laughed. And another time they put a bucket of water over the door and he opened the door and just got doused. And again, you know, very genially, he, uh, he toweled off and he was so patient with them 
and congenial about this that they, they started to feel badly for the pranks that they were, were playing on him. And so one day they told him, we're not going to play any more practical jokes on you. And the Korean said, no more water over door? No, we're not going to do that anymore. No more nail shoes to the floor? No, we're, we're done with that. That's childish. Uh, uh, no more sticky on the knobs? No, we'll never do that again. All right, no more spitty in your soup. <laughs> that's, that's the carnal nature. It, it's human to, to retaliate. If, if you do wrong to me, then I'm going to find a way to do wrong to you. That's th this first truth that we want to recognize is that man's way is to return evil for evil. So grab your iPhone or open your Bible. Grab a Bible located there in front of you if you you want or just follow along on the screen, but we go to Matthew chapter 5. We begin in verse 43. Jesus teaching the message on the mount. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. This was a radical teaching. This was very countercultural to this expectation that, yeah, loving the people who are good to me, get back at people who are bad to me. That's just always been the human way. And Jesus said, no, I, I'm going to change that up a little bit. I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who are persecuting you. If you do that, you'll be like children of your father in heaven. He said, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, are not even the tax collectors doing that? As April 15th approaches, the tax deadline, um, tax collectors, the IRS, are not the most popular people in our, our country. They were not popular then. And Jesus used them as an example. He said, hey, even a tax collector will be good to someone who's good to him. He says, what about if you greet only your own people, you know, your, your friends, your posse, your peeps, the, those who have like-mindedness with you, then that's not significant. Again, even pagans do that. He said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus is, is saying to us, if you love those who love you, so what? Well, what reward will you get? Anybody can do that. Even the farthest pagan distant from God. He's saying what is truly challenging is the Christ-honoring approach that is loving toward even an enemy. Not an easy assignment because some people are, are hard to love. Like that nepotistic sports coach who lets his kid play the whole game while your player and the other players of greater ability remain sitting on the bench and don't get into the game. It's hard to love that coach. Or that careless neighbor who allows her dog to use your yard as her pampered pet's private restroom. 
that's not very neighborly. Or, or that member of your extended family who at every family gathering always manages to say the wrong thing to you. I've shared with you before what Wayne Smith uh, made the comment once. He said, Lord, I know a Christian is not supposed to hate anybody, but if that rule ever changes, I've already got my guy picked out. <laughs> Some people are hard to love. We recognize that. It's easy to love those who love us. You remember back in grade school on the playground when a couple of girls would run up giggling to inform you that their friend Susie likes you, as in boyfriend, girlfriend likes. And often what happened next when you learned that Susie liked you, you'd start thinking, well, I hadn't thought much about her before, but she is pretty good looking and she obviously has great taste, so you quickly send back the messengers with your reciprocal response, tell her, I like her too. That we like those who like us. That's our natural reaction to be good to those who are good to us and to love those who are loving in their treatment of us. And Jesus, once again, uses the Sermon on the Mount to elevate the standard of the Old Testament, to take it to a higher level. And his command is to be kind to those who treat us unkindly, who misrepresent us, who lie about us, who hurt us by their actions, those whose criticism is less than constructive. And that mistreatment can take place at work, it can take place in your neighborhood, it can take place at school, it can take place in your extended family, it can take place even in the church. In an earlier ministry years ago, I had concerns about the casual approach with which the Lord's Supper was being served in junior church, and it was my responsibility as youth minister to oversee this area. So I observed for a while, and after several months, I, I implemented some gradual uh, adjustments, just some innocuous changes in that part of the children's worship to, to bring it into a, a more scriptural conformity. I, I wasn't prepared for the ferocity with which these minor adjustments were, were met. I encountered a couple in the church who viciously opposed these minor constructive changes to our, our programming format. And I was bewildered by their caustic, emotional uh, outburst uh, that came solely from them, from nobody else. But I was trying to understand their oppositional dispositions. And so I, I scheduled a a meeting with a former minister who had been at a previous church and, and had known them before where they attended. And I told him what had happened, and, and he explained some insightful background information on these two outspoken critics, which really helped me have a better context for analyzing why they were acting the way they did. And from that day forward, I I had an extra measure of, of grace and love and understanding for these 
unkind opponents who had reacted unfairly. I genuinely felt sorry for them. And at age 22, I learned big lessons about loving your enemies. That afternoon was more valuable to me than two years of Bible college. It taught me two things. Number one, don't be surprised when the greatest opposition to doing the Lord's work takes place from people already within the church. And the reason is simple. Satan already has the people who are lost in the world, so he works harder and and concentrates on disrupting and dividing those who belong to Christ and are in the church trying to serve him. The old counseling adage is true, hurting people hurt people. And the second thing that afternoon taught me was to listen carefully for what is the source cause behind the words that are being said. Now understand the true motivation or the origin of the agenda, often unstated, many times unrealized by the adversary, but an opponent's resistance to an idea or to a proposed change or to you personally often stems from something not related to church at all, but going on in his or her personal life or family or work or, or, or health. So we can learn and gain something, I think, even from an unfair critic, even though an enemy's motives and demeanor may be completely sinful, we can usually mine a, a nugget of gold from the criticism that will make us better people. There was a, a cartoon that had two guys standing beside a suggestion box in heaven. And the first said, why do we need that here? Pointing to the suggestion box. The other said, yeah, there's some people who are just never satisfied, even in heaven. As the old saying goes, there are some people who would not be satisfied even if King David sang the solo, the angels were the choir, and Jesus gave the message. There are those who would find something about which to complain, and, and that's a personality type. That's a, a negative perspective. That's a, a critical fault-finding spirit. I'm glad that our church is generally a, a very positive church that exemplifies the admonition that the Apostle Paul gave to the Philippian church, Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15, when he commanded, do everything without complaining or anger or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. If I were to ask you to to name the greatest American to ever live, whose name would come to mind? I'd say for most people, the, the name that would top the list would probably be Abraham Lincoln. At the time of his presidency, however, uh, the country sharply divided due to the Civil War, and Lincoln's enemies were harsh and many. He was frequently burned in effigy on the front lawn of, of the White House. His opponents were vicious and unfair, 
He was not a popular president at that point in time. And ultimately, you recall that he was killed by an assassin's bullet. So at that time, he was not a popular president while in office, but stepping back and looking at his profound contribution of freeing the enslaved, uniting a a war-torn country, doing the right thing no matter what, history has heralded his significance as among the greatest. I have a book of quotes from, from Abraham Lincoln, and one of my favorite quotes was when he said, the best way to get rid of your enemy is to make him your friend. And Lincoln lived by that axiom, and he didn't retaliate when petty people attacked him unjustly and relentlessly. He still treated the undeserving with kindness. And that's one reason why he's still remembered as a great man even more than 150 years after his death. Please don't miss the application to us today. The distinguishing mark separating Christians from the rest of the world is a nurtured response in which our carnal nature becomes controlled by God's spirit. People are skeptically scrutinizing us to to see if, if we truly behave differently. Behold how they love one another was the description of the early Christians. If we are to have a a loving, general concern for everybody, we can be like them. It doesn't mean that you have to like everybody, but we do have to love everybody. And God's way is to return good for evil. And that's the second truth we need to recognize. God's way is to return good for evil. It's been said, evil for evil is man's way. Evil for good is Satan's way. Good for evil is God's way, and his way should be our way. Now listen to what Romans 12 has to say about treating our enemies. Starting in verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Let me explain that verse a little bit. That has sometimes been incorrectly understood to mean if if you're kind to someone who treats you badly, uh, you can burn them back by being so nice. That's not what it's saying. Uh, In in, in the Middle East, a lot of your uh, life circled around the fire and having a fire to to cook food, having a fire to stay warm, having a fire to, to boil water. And if, if your fire went out, you were in trouble. And so you would go to a neighbor and say, could you give me some coals from your fire? 
and they put them in an earthenware jar. You put it on your head and walk back home and try to kindle a fire from that. And so it's describing the idea of, of extending a kindness, uh, uh, a neighborly gesture of sharing your fire with someone whose fire has, has gone out, heaping burning coals on their head to, to get them back in the, in the game and cooking and, and staying warm. And then that final verse, verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I remember several years ago, I received a, a phone call from a member of, of the church at, at Bright who uh, kindly, courteously asked me to clarify a statement I had made in my message the, the previous Sunday. And she had waited a, a few days to, to, to sleep on this, something that I had said had, had bothered her, and she spent time praying about this processing it to avoid speaking in anger. And then she spoke with me directly. Uh, emails are dangerous. There's always a risk of those being misinterpreted or misconstrued. It's not the best way to communicate. And, and then while she was feeling offended toward me, she didn't try to discredit me to others and, and gain support for her position, but she addressed me only and she asked this sincere question, seeking clarification. I had made a general statement that had hurt her feelings. I had questioned the high-pressure practices of a familiar company with which I didn't realize her family had been employed. And those practices did not correspond to her family's ethics. And my comment could potentially cast uh, an adverse dispersion on, uh, on them and their approach. And so very graciously, although she was offended and disappointed, she brought that to my attention. I apologize for making my statement, which although accurate with my experience, was probably too sweeping of a generalization in framing that entire business organization. I was glad to learn that they had had a good experience, and I acknowledge that although uh, it had not been my intention to disparage that I should not have editorialized and, and made a wholesale judgment or opinion on that entire company, and, and I was sorry if that had hurt her or her husband. She accepted my apology. We moved forward, leaving that experience in the past, and that's the healing that God intends to happen when we take the proper steps of reconciliation. You know what? After that conversation, I felt even closer to them than before because of the spiritually mature way that she had privately, constructively addressed the misunderstanding. When her husband was dying, the family invited me to his bedside to, to minister to them. And they asked me to conduct his funeral. And they have remained close friends. And I applaud her gentle, winsome, Christ-like approach of speaking the truth in love and helping me to grow. God bless her, and may her tribe increase.
Don't be easily offended. Make an effort to live at peace. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do your part. Peace is not always possible. Some people are, are just contentious and, and proud, and they don't want to get along with others. But you do your part. Achieving peace does not solely depend on you, but you do your part to get along with others. Don't stoop to their level and be overcome by evil, but instead, verse 21, overcome evil with good. I've read historical accounts of the civil rights march, uh, marches in, in Selma, and, and when attacked, uh, the riot police attacked Martin Luther King and his peaceful demonstrators. They did not strike back in retaliation. And it was all captured on the evening news. And that became the pivotal defining moment in securing civil rights. When the public saw that peaceful response to mistreatment, people said, well, this isn't right. Well, wait a minute. We need to rethink this. Maybe we're on the wrong side of, of this issue. And so don't retaliate. The Bible says vengeance belongs to the Lord. And I want to direct our thoughts to, to, to one final passage about enemies. And it's found in Romans chapter 5. And picks up in verse 10. It, it just continues where, where Terry had been in his meditation. It says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son... How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Since because of our sin, we have essentially declared war on God. We have chosen to be his adversaries, his opponents. The Apostle Paul even uses the term declaring that we were God's enemies. And the sacrifice of Jesus, the innocent Dying on the cross for the guilty brought us back into a right relationship, restoring, reconciling us back to God the Father. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You know, decision day was last Sunday, but it's not over. It's just beginning. Being saved, being forgiven, being reconciled to Christ starts us on this journey to a more abundant life here and now and an eternal life hereafter. Make peace with God today. Seal this peace treaty with God. Obey him and live for him.